rare but deadly disease hidden in the air you breathe. And I'm in full-blown panic mode. I've worked my whole life to get my PGA Tour card, and now I've got to go see a hand surgeon. Nearly two-thirds of cases in the United States contracted in Arizona. And actually, if you wanted to draw a really fine point on this, 50% of all U.S. infections occur in Maricopa County. The damage long-lasting. They will never recover. The scarring is permanent. 2021 off to a historic year for cases. So we're now actually ahead of the numbers year to date for 2021 than we were in the highest year on record for Arizona. You may be surprised by what you don't know about Valley Fever. You're listening to a KOLD News 13 original podcast, Danger in the Dust. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Brooke Wagner here with Erin Christensen. Hello. And I want to introduce Dr. Lisa Schubitz. Now, she is with the Valley Fever Center for Excellence. She is a veterinarian. She is a microbiologist and research scientist at the Valley Fever Center for Excellence. Her focus including developing a vaccine for Valley Fever, studying the epidemiology of the disease in canines. And this is something that we have talked with her at length about and are so excited to have her join us to discuss this big breakthrough, a canine vaccine coming as soon as 2022, would you say, Dr. Schubitz? Yes, if we're if, if all the stars align and things continue to progress, it looks like sometime in 2022. That would be amazing. Uh, we've gotten so much response from dog owners either saying, well, I didn't even know how bad it could get. I, I knew my dog could get it. Or even from people saying, I didn't even know this was a thing. Um, and they're so excited to have an opportunity, as you said when we chatted the other day, to protect their dogs. And you said you were excited for Arizona dog owners too. Yes, um, I see, I also do some practice in addition to the research activities that I do. And I see dogs with very bad valley fever. And um, it can be a really devastating disease for the dogs and for the owners. It's expensive when it's very bad. It's expensive anyways, but it can be really expensive when the dog develops complications and the dogs may be on medication for life. It's possible that the medications we have, even the strongest ones that we have available, may not be able to suppress the infection and a few dogs go on to die from the disease pretty much no matter what we can do. So having a vaccine that would prevent like, you know, most all of those kinds of terrible complications would be really beneficial. And I've talked to many groups of people over the years since I started working on Valley Fever, um, groups of dog owners, groups, just general groups of people. And you really can't have five or six people in a room in Tucson or Phoenix and not have at least one person have a story about a friend, a family member, or a pet who's had um, severe, you know, severely consequential valley fever. So what is the 
may, maybe this is putting the cart before the horse here. What What is the likelihood that this could pave the way for a human vaccine? Do you, do you know? Yes. Actually, that's one of the really exciting things about this dog vaccine over and above the ability to prevent the majority of disease in dogs is that the NIH funding that we received to develop the canine vaccine was the the underlying objective of that was that the dog vaccine does in fact pave the way to a human vaccine and currently i mean there's actually a grant a second grant proposed that takes the vaccine that we're developing for use in dogs with relatively few modifications towards um, development and clinical trials in humans. So this is this is definitely on the path to a vaccine to prevent valley fever in humans. So we do good for dogs also, but you know we ultimately really want to be able to prevent the disease in people as well. I want to get back to that in a moment because um, there is heightened awareness about vaccines right now, certainly. So we'll have some more questions. But first, let's kind of get to some of the basics of why dogs and what makes dogs such crucial victims of valley fever. Dogs are very, they're very susceptible to valley fever. On a scale of all animals, they're probably not the most susceptible but they are similarly susceptible as humans. There are many dogs living here in this area, you know, with their human owners. One of the reasons why the diseases of such huge consequence in dogs is surely their numbers, uh, coupled with their susceptibility. And it does in fact look like from some research that we did between 2000 and 2003, that the rate of infection in dogs is a little bit higher than it is in humans. And the rate of clinical infection is about 4% of dogs per year, somewhere between 4 and 6% in Pima Pinal and Maricopa County are likely to get sick from valley fever. So that's actually a pretty high, a pretty high number of dogs. When I talk to local veterinarians, they'll tell me they see, you know, a case a week, and we're talking about a new case. They diagnose a new case every week. And at certain times of the year, it may be even more common than that. We tend to see spikes in disease in the fall after our monsoon, since we're actually going to have one this year. (laughs) And it dries out, and those um, spores get into the air and the dust again and start to blow around, and dogs and people get sick. The spike is visible in humans, too, but obviously we... I talk to more veterinarians than physicians. And it's just a big, huge problem. I, I'm curious about something. Um, I had an acute case of valley fever, had surgery, had one lobe of my right lung removed as a result. And one of the questions people kept asking me over and over was, does your dog have valley fever? Because I think they make this correlation between, well, if my backyard, for instance, has dirt with valley fever, that's where I got it. So my dog must have shown some sort of signs first. Just in your work with dogs that have valley fever, have you noticed that there's some sort of correlation that their owners have it too? No, that's infrequent. 
Um, we encounter some families like that occasionally, and they're actually kind of exciting to meet someone who says, well, I had valley fever too, and now my dog's got valley fever. And so we occasionally see cases like that, and that it makes us want to run out with a shovel and start digging up dirt in their backyard. But we think, and our we weren't able to delve deep enough into the research to prove it back when we had a little bit of funding for it. But we think that dogs probably acquire valley fever near their home and near their yard, unless they're dogs that have jobs like uh, they hunt or things like that where they're being taken away from their small backyard all the time into large desert areas where they're maybe more likely to be exposed to spores than they are, say, in downtown Phoenix or downtown Tucson. Um, but we think that most dogs probably acquire valley fever close to home because they don't go as many places as people. People are very mobile. They get in their car and they drive around and they drive here and they drive there and they're exposed to this environment and that environment. And also Dr. Galgiani, and he may have reflected this in uh, his conversation with you guys already, thinks that it only takes one or two spores to make a person sick. And you could breathe that spore in anywhere. And a good example of that is that while cats don't get anywhere near as much valley fever as dogs, we see maybe one case in a cat for every 50 active cases in a dog. But we can see this disease, we frequently see this disease in cats that don't have any exposure to soil. They're indoor cats. So the spores are blowing in through your air systems or your windows or they're being carried in on your shoes or your clothing into the air that the cats breathe in. And there's a fungal disease in the Midwest that's similar to this and they have reported the same thing that you can see this in completely indoor cats. So the spores are pretty mobile too in the air and they can blow around and just accidentally get inhaled by you and you know, if you're susceptible, you can get sick. One of our theories is that one, one possible reason why dogs get um, clinically sick more often or maybe a little more with a little more consequences in humans is because their behaviors um, cause them to engage with soil and dirt a lot. They like to sniff things. They get a lot of information about their environment from their nose. And if you look at some of the research, epidemiologic research in dogs that's been done over time, there are associations between you know, digging by dogs, um, dogs that spend more time outside or more likely to become infected because um, they just spend more time in this environment close to the dirt and are like you know more become more likely to get enough spores inhaled into their lungs to make them sick and what are the symptoms for pet owners what can happen what can the spore 
do uh, once it's disseminated? And is there any kind of prevention out there? So the spores, in almost all cases, the spores enter by being inhaled. So they enter into the lungs. And the first thing they do is cause an infection in the lungs. And the most common symptoms that dogs exhibit are symptoms related to like a pneumonia, an upper respiratory or a lung type disease. They cough. Um, many of them have a fever. They can be very lethargic. It makes them not feel well. And one of the things owners report frequently is uh, my dog doesn't have any energy or he sleeps all the time. You know, this is especially uh, evident in younger dogs that are usually really active and owners notice this a lot. It can cause them to lose their appetite in part because they've got a systemic infection and dogs that have um, high fevers don't eat. They really feel very inaptent. And because they've got this systemic infection, um, some of them lose weight very rapidly. You know, they may lose 5 to 10% of their body weight in just a few weeks with a very active infection. <clears throat> some animals contain that infection within their lungs and they never develop any symptoms other than respiratory symptoms. People are pretty vigilant and a dog with a cough for more than a week or two is usually going to end up in the veterinary office and veterinarians have a very high awareness of valley fever in the Tucson and Phoenix area. And that kind of a situation is going to prompt them to run diagnostic testing to look specifically for valley fever. And these dogs will usually get onto medication right away and thus may avoid some of the complications. Some dogs will inhale the spores and have either such a mild infection that it goes undiagnosed or they don't have any overt respiratory signs at all, but the fungus gets outside the lungs and into other parts of the body. And it gets out of the lungs through the bloodstream or through what's called the lymphatic system. And from there, it can go almost anywhere in an animal or, or a human, but we're talking specifically about animals now. And the most common place it goes in dogs is into a bone. And the dogs are most likely to come up with some kind of a lameness or pain in a leg. And the owner will take them to the vet because this either gets worse quickly or it doesn't resolve like a, you know, a sprain, strain kind of thing that goes away in a couple of days. And these lesions are usually pretty easy to see with an x-ray. And in addition to the regular valley fever diagnostics, veterinarian will probably try to take an x-ray of the dog. It can get into the bones of the back. It can get into the brain. And in dogs where the valley fever gets into the brain, the most common presentation is seizures. You know, the dog was fine and then suddenly the dog starts developing seizures and that's a fairly common way that it would get diagnosed if it's in the brain. It can go to lymph nodes in various parts of the body, and it's not that common, but it can really be anywhere. Muscles, subcutaneous draining lesions that don't heal up. Um, in dogs that aren't neutered, it kind of likes the testicles, and they may 
swell and the veterinarian says they need to be taken off and that's often diagnosed by biopsy because they were submitted because they didn't know why this dog had an infection in the testicles but um, so it's not very picky about where it lives inside the dog and how much how sick the dog is and how much damage it does can depend on how widespread the infection is and where it goes However, they're all treated pretty much the same way, you know, usually by administration of oral medicine for a long, long time, months, sometimes years. Dogs that have really widespread disease may need some intravenous infusions in the hospital for several weeks to help them start to feel better. <clears throat> but the majority of them are treated with oral antifungal medication. I want to point out, since we talked about um, owners and dogs, just for those who may not know, this is not a contagious illness. Um, it, you know, it only comes from inhaling those spores. It's You can't pass it from animal to person, from person to person, from animal to animal, anything like that. So that's a quick note. And then another quick note, something, this is for you, Paul. Um, I just want to mention that um, Dr. Schubitz is with us via Zoom. And so if you hear differences in the audio, that's, that's the reason. And, and so we're, we're making it as clear as we can. But, it, you know, just so you're aware, that's, uh, we're not all in the same room. I am curious how long this vaccine has kind of been in the works. So the vaccine that we're working on right now has been in the works for approximately eight years. And part of the reason why it takes so long is that you don't just like come up with a thing and all of a sudden decide you're going to go out and do a dog study. And it's gone, undergone extensive testing in mice, laboratory mice, which is the primary model for studying almost everything about valley fever because they're susceptible and they're small. And when you work with belly fever in the laboratory, it has a very high risk, an aerosol risk of infection for laboratory workers. So we have special biosafety level three laboratories that are designed and contain biosafety cabinets that help to protect the humans that are working on the infection from becoming sick with the spores because we grow them deliberately in the laboratory and these things that you might encounter in small quantities out in the real world are encountered in intense concentrations in a laboratory setting. So to be safe, we work with them under very special circumstances. And the biosafety cabinets are best at handling, you know, these small animals. And we can learn a lot from them. You know, you can study you know, the infection in the lungs. You can study how the infection gets out of the lungs. You can study many things about the immunology of what it takes to protect humans or dogs from this infection by learning about it in mice. And in particular, mice are considered a very good model for studying human diseases. So, so we spent many years doing uh, studies in mice in the laboratory. It's not like we did studies on it all the time. There were kind of some funding difficulties initially. So we would do a couple of studies and then you needed to try to figure out how to generate some more resources to do the next set of studies. 
And then also it's really important to understand exactly what um, is the, what, you know, what at the genetic level of the vaccine fungus is, is it always the same? Does it mutate into something else? And those are very important safety things when you're talking about taking this into either dogs or humans. You know, is it safe in the environment? Is it going to cause any environmental problems? So there are many years of research into those kinds of aspects of this before um, you get to the point where you feel confident that you have something that is probably both safe and efficacious to take into a dog first and then into people. So that's why it takes so long. And prior to working with this particular vaccine, this Delta CPS-1, we had worked with many different kinds of higher tech uh, vaccine products that are called subunits or they're tiny pieces or fragments or proteins, kind of like um, the mRNA fragments of the coronavirus that go into the vaccine that's a, you know, most important globally right now. And those kinds of products didn't work spectacularly well for valley fever, in part because this is a super complex organism that consists of six whole chromosomes and not just a string of RNA like a coronavirus and that's complicated enough. And the second reason is because many of those products require things that are called adjuvants, which are things that help boost the body's ability to make an immune response to a little tiny portion of an infectious agent. And adjuvants are, can be very species specific so adjuvants that we worked with in mice that looked like they were good may not translate at all into being useful for generating the correct immune response in either dogs or people. And one of the problems with that is it's hard to then do the research in the mice and translate it. The second part is developing a vaccine like that then becomes astronomically expensive. And it's important to remember that while Valley fever is an extremely common and important disease in Arizona and in California that as soon as you get beyond, you know, New Mexico, southern Texas, you know, southern Nevada, you have a disease that doesn't occur at all. So this is what they call a small market vaccine in an orphan disease. And in order to be actually commercially successful at having a vaccine for valley fever, it has to be something that's affordable to make in the first place. And the other really huge benefit of the Delta CPS-1 vaccine candidate that we're working with is it's on a scale of expensiveness, it's much less expensive than things that are, um, you know, subunit vaccines that require adjuvants and other things to make them work. So this is a really practical from an economic standpoint as well as being very efficacious in the mouse model. It's all very helpful because our baseline for so many of us who've learned more than we ever thought we would about vaccines in the last year and a half, the race to a COVID vaccine is certainly not an archetype. It doesn't typically work that way. So what you're describing is much more realistic for many vaccines, especially for 
uh, an orphan illness like this. So what is next in your in in bringing the vaccine to market and is there actually canine testing or do you start giving it to the to dogs just when it when it's on the market how does that work so there has been a little bit of testing in dogs in in laboratory dogs and part of the reason why first of all it's it's actually beneficial to your dog and my dog that some other dog has taken it first and that we're not giving them something dangerous the other thing is that the the united states department of Department of Agriculture and a subdivision of that called the Center for Veterinary Biologics is the one that regulates animal vaccines. And their rules require that a vaccine that is going to be licensed for use in an animal, like whether it's cows or horses or chickens or dogs or anything. So all of the vaccines that you give to your animals have gone through exactly this kind of process. They require that it be tested for both safety and efficacy in a model in the target species. And our target species is dogs. We're going to license this vaccine for use in dogs. So it must be tested in dogs. And they basically give you a, a set of instructions as to exactly how you will test it. So this vaccine has been given to a set of dogs and shown that um, injection site reactions are transient and they go away. It didn't make any dogs sick. It doesn't persist. And then the dogs were um, challenged with a, a valley fever infection and all of the vaccinated dogs did, you know, they did basically perfect. And while we could identify some fungus a little bit in the lungs of some of the dogs, I would say 80% of them, I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, had no evidence that we'd actually given them the infection. So I was actually very excited about this because it looks like it should prevent most of what, most of the sickness, none of the dogs were actually sick. As a matter of fact, none of the dogs were clinically sick in the experiment that we ran, but we could see like lung and their lung x-rays showed that they had swelling of their lymph nodes like we would see in a naturally infected dog. And that was actually pretty well limited to the, <clears throat> the control dogs that weren't vaccinated. So the things that we could measure um, all showed that the vaccine was very efficacious in the dogs. So that part of the work is completed. And the next step is that the vaccine has to be able to be put into a shelf-stable situation. That means it has to be put into vials and be able to stay alive, because this is a live vaccine, like a distemper vaccine, long enough to be able to be distributed to veterinary offices so they can give it to your animal because you don't want to go in and get that valley fever vaccine and find out that all the spores in the bottle died and it's not actually doing your dog any good at all so so the the studies that are underway right now the formulation studies are how do we put it in a bottle 
and make it shelf stable so it can be distributed to for for sale so that we can actually vaccinate real dogs and then once that has been accomplished the next stage is actually to determine the safety of the vaccine in community dogs because us a study of a small number of dogs just doesn't tell you how it's going to act in the real world. And I always say that life is a bell-shaped curve. And eventually, if you give this to enough dogs, a dog or more than one dog is going to have some kind of an adverse reaction. And you can't determine that in a tiny study unless it's a disastrously terrible vaccine and you know all of the dogs have adverse reactions. That's a problem, and then we, we didn't experience that. So the next stage is a safety study that will be run in community dogs. And it'll be distributed in two doses, the way it ex we expect to use it. And a side benefit for the dogs that are enrolled in the safety study is that their dogs will probably be immune once the, you know, once the safety study's done. And and after that, then you go back to the USDA and request licensure of the vaccine. So it's kind of a journey. And when we started on this journey, I don't, I really did not have a full understanding of what it took to bring a vaccine to market. It was a much larger endeavor than I, than I thought. We learned a lot. We're glad we have a commercial partner who understands how to make vaccines. Huge thanks to Dr. Lisa Schubitz for that in-depth look at the canine valley fever vaccine and the symptoms of valley fever in pets. In our next episode, we'll talk to Janet Galante, owner of Sit, Stay, Play, a social learning center for dogs in Tucson. Hear her experience with valley fever and the emotional and financial toll it can take on their owners. Join us next time on Danger in the Dust, a KOLD original podcast.